Isaiah 28, these are the words of God. Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valleys. To those who are overcome with wine, behold, the Lord has a mighty and strong one, like a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, like a flood of mighty waters overflowing, who will bring them down to the earth with his hand. The crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, will be trampled underfoot, and the glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valley. Like the first fruit before the summer, which an observer sees, he eats it up while it is still in his hand. And that day Yahweh of hosts will be for a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people for a spring of justice to him who sits in judgment, and for strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. But they also have erred through wine, and through intoxicating drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. They are swallowed up by wine. They are out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. For all tables are full of vomit and filth. No place is clean. Whom will he teach knowledge, and whom will he make to understand the message? Those just weaned from milk, those just drawn from the breasts? For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For with stammering lips and another tongue he will speak to this people. To whom he said, This is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing. <laughs> Yet they would not hear. The word of Yahweh was to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and caught. Therefore hear the word of Yahweh, you scornful men who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. Because you have said, We have made a covenant with death. With Sheol, we are in agreement. When the overflowing scourge passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood we have hidden ourselves. Therefore thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. Also I will make justice the measuring line, and righteousness the plummet. The hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and the waters will overflow the hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled. <coughs> Your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overflowing scourge passes through, then you will be trampled down by it. As often as it goes out, it will take you. For morning by morning it will pass over, and by day and by night it will be a terror just to understand the report. For the bed is too short to stretch out on, and the covering so narrow that one cannot wrap himself in it. For Yahweh will rise up as at Mount Peretzim, he will be angry, as in the valley of Gibeon, that he may do his work, his awesome work, 
and bring to pass his act, his unusual act. Now therefore do not be mockers, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard from the Lord Yahweh of hosts a destruction determined even upon the whole earth. Give ear and hear my voice. Listen and hear my speech. Does the plowman keep plowing all day to sow? Does he keep turning his soil and breaking the clods? When he has leveled its surface, does he not sow the black cumin and scatter the cumin, plant the wheat in rows, the barley in its appointed place, the spelt in its place? For he instructs him in right judgment. His God teaches him. For the black cumin is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cart wheel rolled over the cumin. But the black cumin is beaten out with a stick and the cumin with a rod. Bread flour must be ground, therefore he does not thresh it forever, break it with his cartwheel, or crush it with his horsemen. This also comes from Yahweh of hosts, who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. <coughs> and then that sends this reading of God's inspired and inerrant word. We come into a new section of the book of Isaiah this week. In the previous section, we had the various judgments against the nations and how they anticipated the great judgment that was coming in the last day. But now the Lord very specifically turns his attention to uh, Ephraim, uh, which is the northern kingdom of Israel, and uh, Judah and Jerusalem, representative of the southern uh, kingdom of Israel. Uh, And he pronounces a series of six woes. And here, instead of woes on different place names, he gives woes on different names to the same place. Uh, And he calls his people uh, by names that identify their sin and uh, their offense before God and their danger to themselves. And so the first one of these six woes is the woe to the crown of pride. The woe to the crown of of pride. And we all have pride remaining in us, in our flesh, and it is a great danger to us. Whenever we think about pride, one of the first things we think about is that great and dreadful biblical statement that God opposes the proud. And so as he pronounces woe to their pride, he highlights multiple ways in which their pride has offended God, harmed them, and is bringing uh, judgment and wrath down upon them. Uh, The first is that pride puts man in the place of God. Pride puts ourself in the place of God. Those who think that the crown belongs to us, that we have glorious beauty as the head of verdant valleys, rich green, lush, full of life valleys, this phrase that is repeated in verse 1 and then again in verse 4. But that which we think is so glorious about ourselves, he says here, is a fading flower. Uh, And it's foolish because we're creatures and because we are are so weak and we are so short-lived. And this is over against the true crown, the true glorious beauty, the true source of all life, which is the Lord himself, verse 5. In that day, 
Yahweh of hosts will be for a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. When we wear our own pride like a crown and are impressed with ourselves, we are putting ourselves in the place of God. And therefore, not only because of our creatureliness, not only because of our short-livedness, <laughs> but even uh, especially because our putting ourselves in the place of God, we should be, expect to be destroyed immediately. But the remnant, those who God preserves and those who will remain and will be his forever and ever, as we have heard several times now in the book of Isaiah, are those who do not put the crown on their own heads, but who see God as the one who is crowned. He is the great king. And God, whose beauty is glorious and whose glory is beautiful. So that's the first danger of pride. Pride puts ourselves in the place of God. If you are living your life either impressed with yourself or wishing that you could be impressed with yourself or that others could be impressed with you, you are giving to yourself, whether in your view of yourself already or in your desires, a place that belongs to God. And you will not be uh, able to see the greatness of God's glory or desire that God would be glorified. It is impossible to live for God's glory and hope that people will be impressed with you at the same time. Uh, we must be impressed with God and live as those who desire that we ourselves would be more impressed with God and that others would be impressed with God. So that's the first danger of pride. Pride puts man in the place of God. Pride turns blessing into a curse. Uh, we've heard several times in recent chapters, um, 25, uh, and the feast of the wines and the wines and the lees, and then 27, and the picture of uh, God himself with his true vine, which has borne good fruit. He describes it as a, a vine of red wine. Uh, and this was one of the things that would come to Israel uh, in God's mercy and in God's blessing to them that uh, the land would be productive. And among the things that it was productive uh, of for them was wine. But when we are proud and we credit ourselves with the good that God has given us, not only do we rob God of glory and thanks, but then we have a wrong view of the good things that we have. And rather than using them unto his glory and according to his law and in enjoyment of him, we use them unto our own pleasure and self-indulgence in breaking of his law, enjoyment of ourselves, and this leads to self-destruction. And so here you have the good wine which God has given them, but because they are proud, because they are full of themselves, they are being they are getting drunk on the wine. And the priests and the rulers, uh, who are then the most proud and the most self-indulgent uh, in this woe that is being pronounced uh, upon Israel, uh, are those are unable to carry out their office well because they are too drunk to carry out their office. And so the priest and the prophet err in vision and stumble in judgment uh, the tables here, referring probably to different preparation tables and maybe even the table in the temple with the showbread, uh, where the priests are supposed to be offering that which is holy unto God, 
they're covered with vomit and filth because they're too drunk to carry out their service and they're puking uh, on that which is holy. That's a disgusting image, just physiologically uh, to us, to our senses, but how much more spiritually when we realize who those people were supposed to be and what those tables were supposed to be for. Dreadful, dreadful, the way that pride leads to lack of gratitude, and lack of gratitude for God's good gifts leads to abuse of God's good good gifts. And the better the thing, the priest or the prophet and so forth, uh, the more horrible uh, when our pride destroys it. And this happens not necessarily with the same physiological disgustingness, but for instance, when a preacher or a father is proud in himself and not learning from the Bible, and he's been appointed as God's servant to announce God's word to his people. And instead, you have sermons that are full of uh, man-made ideas and rubbish, which we see to an extremely gross extent in mainline churches, uh, but with, which is possible in any church, our church, with me, if I come to the passage in pride and I'm not submitted to it. Uh, and then also in the analogy, a father or a mother, his or her children, who are also appointed. And so pride turns blessings into curse. And so let us seek from God to be humbled before him and under his word, that we might not turn the blessings which he gives us, whether material or spiritual, into a curse. Uh, pride also, therefore, harms not only ourselves, but those to whom we ought to have been a blessing. Verse 9 is asking a rhetorical question in light of the fact that the, the prophets and the priests are all drunk, asking whom is God going to teach so that they can be the teachers of the people? Uh, and he says, they're all like nursing babes. Yeah, how, yeah, how, can, you, uh, how can you teach someone who is still uh, like a, a nursing baby, still has to be fed from the mommy and carried around and has have his diaper <coughs> changed. And if, if they're spiritually like that, how can they be the teachers of others? And this is actually something that, that Hebrews asks, doesn't it? Uh, it says, by this time you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. You have come to need milk and not solid food, he says in Hebrews 5. Uh, verse 12, and there, the book of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit is making reference back to here, uh, that if we do not grow, if we do not press on to spiritual maturity, which is not something that can happen overnight, it's not something that you can do by having like an intensive officer training course, and you take people, you take men who are spiritual babies and turn them into elders through a 13-week class. No, it is line upon line precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, the Lord training us up through the slow, cumulative process of maturing us, not only by the way that he builds the work of training our minds and training our hearts by his word day by day uh, at the home and week by week in the assembly, but then also in the increasing application in the life. And so pride harms not only ourselves, but those to whom you ought to have been a blessing. The man who is least able to learn is not the one with small intellectual capacity. 
The man who is least able to learn is the one with a high opinion of himself because he does not learn when he is taught. And so he misses. He's someone with a small capacity. They can still learn a line and a precept and a little. And God in his mercy teaches them and trains them and matures them. Many of us know, for instance, in, in our own congregation, I can think of some, I love people who are not that intellectually book smart or even theologically technically smart. But over time, as they have learned and they have grown, they built a theological knowledge. But even more than that, they have built a spiritual maturity so that the theological knowledge they have is applied in their interaction with God and in their interaction with men and the steadiness and maturity of their life. Pride prevents that from happening. And so one of the things that we most need if we are going to be useful to God's people, and particularly <coughs> and particularly for you who hope one day to be useful to a wife, to uh, your children, one of the things that we need is humility. And you need to be now learning and applying and growing and maturing because you're not going to be able to become a great husband or a great mother or a great wife uh, overnight either. And so maturity must be built over time. Pride also uh, will keep us from our one true hope. The pride of the Israelites uh, and the pride uh, especially uh, of Jerusalem uh, you remember back earlier when uh, the Lord was offering to Ahaz that that the Lord would <laughs> give him a sign and the Lord would preserve him. But Ahaz had responded, oh no, I wouldn't ask God for a sign uh, in chapter 7 and verse 12. And why did he respond that way? Well, we know why he responded that way when we look at Second Kings uh, 16 verse 7 through 9. Ahaz was responding that way because he already had hope in his own plan. Here God was sending a judgment. You know, death and Sheol were were coming, were being sent. Jerusalem and Judah and Ahaz in particular thought that they had been very clever uh, to enter into an agreement, a treaty, with Tiglath-Pileser, the Assyrian king. And so he was unwilling to trust in God saving him because he was trusting in Assyria to save him. He was really trusting in his own cleverness as a king who could make a treaty like this and make sure that he one-ups whatever is going on. And God says, no, your, your covenant with death and your agreement with Sheol isn't going isn't to stand. What would have stood and what will stand is the stone that he lays in Zion, verse 16, the precious cornerstone, the sure foundation. But wherever we are proud, whenever we trust in our own ideas, whenever we trust in our own efforts, we make ourselves comfortable or sure in ourselves so that when God actually presents himself to us as our hope, which is ultimately what the gospel is, isn't it? God himself has come in Christ. God has given himself in Christ as our hope and as our salvation. He is the chief cornerstone. But the chief cornerstone becomes what? What we heard in chapter 8. A stumbling stone. And here, uh, again, the cornerstone uh, that is the chapter 8 stumbling stone. God is providing a true hope, but, what, but pride prevents them from hoping in what God provides because they're hoping in themselves and what their idea was or what their efforts were. Uh, and in Romans, the end of Romans 9, beginning of Romans 10, uh, the Lord refers back to this passage and to the chapter 8 passage. 
And he says, that's what's happening with the Jews. They had a law that would have led them to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for righteousness. But instead of coming to the law by way of faith and hoping in God's provision of salvation, they treated the law as if it was by works. And so hoping in their own efforts, when God presented them with Christ as a foundation for salvation, they didn't trust in Christ. They just stumbled right over him and kept going on as if it were by works. Whenever we take our comfort or find our safety in how good our ideas are or how good our efforts are, even ideas about God, even efforts for God, we can even do this with the gospel. If my feeling of safety is because how sure I am right that my theology is accurate, then maybe my theology is accurate, but if that is what I am trusting in, that's what I'm feeling safe in, then I'm actually doing the opposite of what my accurate theology says, which is to trust only in God, to feel safe only in Christ. And so you see how the the pride of Israel here, thinking that they had found their own way of safety with the Assyrian invasion, led them not to take safety in the Lord who had offered it to them. And he tells them here, he's not going to let their covenant with Assyria work out. No, he is going to make sure that they too are destroyed along with everybody else. Only those who hope in the Lord will be safe. Uh, And then in the last place, uh, pride keeps us from receiving well the chastening of God. Uh, And this is the last part with the uh, plowing and the threshing. And God here tells us that he has taught the farmer the different stages of his work so that we would be able to see in that a picture that there are different stages in God's work. That yes, there are times when our hearts and our pride are hard, like clods of dirt that need to be plowed. Uh, and the plow goes through and cuts it, and the um, the cartwheel goes through and smashes it and gets everything ready. But then there's planting, uh, and planting sounds a little bit better. We don't like to be plowed and smashed. Okay, planting, but after there's planting, what else has to be done? There's there's the threshing and the sorting, and then there's grinding. And all of that sounds fairly unpleasant, but at the end, there is the, the fine flour, uh, just as in... The previous passage, a couple chapters ago, the Lord described his, uh, not a couple chapters ago, just as in the previous passage in chapter 27, verse 12, the Lord was gathering to himself his good grain. Uh, If we are proud, we are not going to humbly submit to God's wisdom in whatever he's doing in our lives. And so when we're in the middle of the plowing, or we're in the middle of the threshing, or we're in the middle of the grinding, Uh, we will think, God has turned against me. But if we are humble under him, we will say, God showed me, even by the way he makes the planting of these different things on the way to having the fine grain and the fine flour at the end. God has shown me to, to be humble under his wisdom, what he knows needs to be done at whatever time, and his intention towards me is good, and I will hope in him. And so pride keeps us not only from trusting in the one true hope at the beginning, but also uh, in the midst of God's work in our lives, pride will receive keep us from receiving 
God's chastenings well. Let's pray. Our gracious God and our Heavenly Father, we do ask that your spirit would make us humble and that you would give us more grace. O Lord, have mercy upon us and kill our pride. For you oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. But O Lord, how can proud, fleshly people such as we are even become those humble to whom you give grace? Even that is only by your grace. And so we pray that your spirit would convince us about ourselves of these things that we have been reading and hearing from your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.